Data storytellers. Today on the show, I have with me Videotam Reddy, who is the Growth Analytics Director over at Mars. Videotam, welcome on the show. Hey, Laszlo, thank you so much. Um, I'm glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. It's going to be a fun conversation. We already had some preliminary discussions, just diving into some of the war stories, but uh, I want to unpack in this yep. discussion. So uh, first of all, you have an interesting background. So you've been with AT&T, Nielsen, General Mills, and now with Mars. Can you just tell me, first of all, like how did you get into data analytics? What really uh, drew you in? What, what inspired you? What made you want to be a, a data leader? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I'd be lying if I said, oh, this was what I wanted to do when I was born and I wanted to grow up and become a data analytics professional and help companies, you know, spark growth conversations. And my God, I went to school for this and I took a degree and, you know, and none of that is true for my case, right? It's true today. But when I was, you know, starting off in my profession, I stumbled into it. Hmm. I literally stumbled into it. Okay. So my background is I'm an economist. Okay. I'm an econometrics, uh, you know, a trained economist. And I was going to go off and get my PhD in economics, which I did from Fordham University, you know, here in New York City. And, um, and I was just going to, you know, um, just do that and, you know, and, and go change the world from a development economic standpoint to international trade. Boom, boom, boom. But then I was living, I was living in the city and I needed a paycheck over the summer. So I literally mail bombed local companies to say, hey, do you have a job for me? Uh, and guess what? AT&T picked up my resume and said, yeah, we'll hire you because you have SAS coding skills, right? I had a SAS programming, you know, kind of a background in that sense because I had to learn it at school. Anyways, so guess what? Um, I show up as a summer intern and the group that hired me was a Consumer Insights organization within AT&T's uh, business to business, uh, you know, uh, uh, space, okay? And the rest is history, Laszlo. I, I was hooked. I showed up. And I understood how these folks were taking consumer insights information, you know, with their business partners and turning that into, you know, metrics that drive the business. They were understanding satisfaction. They were understanding that satisfaction with the product was a real thing. And it mattered because that's what fundamentally drove the growth of the business. And how do you get better and better at it, better than your kind of competition at least. And I was hooked. So guess what? That was summer of 95. This is what summer of 2022, do the math. Here I am, you know, 27 years later, uh, I am loving it. Uh, and I'm enjoying this whole journey of saying, how do you understand your consumer in the real sense of the term? And then how do you take those learnings and grow your business? Hmm. Um, and so that's my, that's my journey. And, uh, you know, that's how I got into it. So I'd say I stumbled into it, but um, I very mindfully chose to stay in it and, and grow at it. Mm -hmm. And when we first spoke, I could tell immediately because I spent my life speaking with senior data practitioners that you're super passionate about it. And you had just such, such sharp insights that I wanted to make sure that we can you know, share a conversation yeah. with uh, our audience as well. Now, 27 years is a long time in the 21st century, but especially when we talk about data analytics, it's almost <laughs> three, three decades. Yeah. So now we're moving into the 2020s, like deeper and deeper. You, know, you can hear this being thrown around that it will be the decade of data. And mm -hmm. probably as usually with these trends, that would be... Uh, uh, a lot of losers, a lot of winners, but how do you, how do you see the industry evolving? So what, what have you observed in terms of the key challenges that people face who are trying to turn large businesses into more data-driven enterprises? What have you identified as some of the bottlenecks, some of the key challenges in the industry? 
Yeah. So, um, so great question. Um, and of course, this is my bread and butter, and this is where I live, and you know, make make my make my you know make my impact, if you may, in the real world. Um, and uh, you know, to me, let me let me go back because the first question you asked is it's almost three decades, right? Mm. So, so what are the challenges, and what's you know what's different today? Say, for example, from what you know what was the case when I was the summer intern back in '95. Um, I think that nothing has changed, Laszlo, in terms of what is needed for the businesses to grow. Okay, you can grow businesses basically on the backs of two things. No matter what you do, no matter how sophisticated your business model is, no matter how much data you have or don't have, there are two things that determine how you grow your business. It's either selling more to people who already buy you, mm -hmm. which is penetration, uh, I'm sorry, buy rate, mm -hmm. or it is basically bringing new people into the franchise. So convincing new people who've never bought you to buy you, that's penetration. Mm -hmm. Penetration and frequency, okay? And you can apply this construct to any business, any offering, any paradigm. That fundamental has not changed. What has changed is how do you learn what drives penetration and frequency? The sources of information you have, what you can leverage how real and how quickly you can get insights to drive your decisioning to drive those two things. That's what's changed, mm. right, over the past 30 years. And where that has changed, in my very humble opinion, is not in how you analyze these things. It's in how you set up to analyze these things. So back in the day, in 1995, <laughs> you know, you got the data literally via paper reports. So my job, remember I told you they hired me to come in and do the, do the intern job because it was uh, that SAS coding. I used to sit in the basement running mainframe SAS code that would generate you know, business reports that I would put in mail slots. And then I showed up and I asked my manager and say, hey, what do you do with this stuff? And he said, you can go to a meeting, but you have to promise that you're going to be quiet uh, because you can tell, right? I can, I can get going once I get going. So he's like, you sit in the back, you don't say anything, but you can listen, right? And what I was realizing what these guys were doing is they were taking that information and turning it into business actions, actionable insights right there in the room. Okay. Now that, that aspect of that, taking the data and turning it into an insight, if you may, in 1995 was a, was a very long end to end process. You know, it, it took, it took weeks, months, probably even a couple of, you know, a couple of quarters to cycle through that information. That's what's changed. Now you can generate that same insight in an instant because you have the ability and the, and the technology to do it. So that's what's changed. So let me be very clear. What's not changed is what questions you're answering. What's not changed is what you need to grow your business, right, fundamentally. What has changed is how you leverage information to make those decisions faster and faster, well, at least faster than your competitive set, mm. right? So, so the amazing thing of the technology revolution, if you may, in the in in kind of my business area or my landscape, is just unbelievable. Hmm. Like I like I said, those reports that I would take six months to run, and when I mean I'm not taking six months to run the report, but I'm taking six months to generate the insight mm -hmm. from the time the data is generated, right, is like now, like I said, instantaneous. Now, the issue, though, however with all this is that when we go in and we upgrade or upskill our analytic capabilities, we are, I think, getting a little distracted in where to place the investments and where to place the expertise mm -hmm. to leverage all this. Mm -hmm. I think we are so taken in and so seduced by the, 
by the amazing capabilities that tech has provided, that what we are doing is we are confusing data for insight. Mm -hmm. All right. That's the biggest challenge I think today. Um, the biggest challenge is big companies, large organizations that have the wherewithal to make these big investments in digitizing their data assets, I think are we are all moving in a direction where we tend to be, I think, over-indexing the ability to get the data and process the data and democratize the data versus actually focusing in on and also upskilling and upgrading the inside generation process that needs to sit on top of this. And until you pace your inside generation and adaption at the same rate that you're pacing your digital transformation of your data assets, there's always going to be this, you know, this upside down approach to what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like momentum, right? So you have two pieces of this body. They're moving at the same momentum. Well, guess what? Guess what? The bottom piece is moving faster than the top piece. So what do you think is going to happen? Absolutely. And it's so interesting. Go. And it's been so interesting to watch because uh, I have a military background. So I was in uh, reconnaissance and, and field intelligence. And then that was kind of like an almost organic progression into business data. And I think it started around 2014 when the trend really started to go hard and the technology started to kind of break away. And what we observed is actually that on the market, if you think about exchanging ideas and best practices between leading professionals, the conversation is very tech-driven because it's usually the solution providers yeah. who kind of dictate the agenda. And look, I mean, they are for-profit companies as we as we all are. So that, that in and of itself is not an issue, but we felt that the conversation is, that the really important conversations are not being actually discussed. And in this case, it's such a such a, an accurate picture that you're painting about how technology kind of broke away, but then the insights generation, that that's where we're lacking. So first of all, what do you think then is the greatest challenge for a data transformation leader like you today in the business? Because maybe the, the challenges of, of data functions in terms of what the tasks are, what the mission is, what the mandate is from the business, it might not have changed at all. But at the same time, you're, you are finding yourself in a different business landscape. So Absolutely. adapting to that business landscape, what do you see now as the key challenges for the data transformation leader specifically? Yeah. So I'll answer that two ways. I'll answer the data transformation leader specifically, but I'll also answer it at the organization level. And I'm going to call a little bit of BS or I'm going to call it bullshit, right? Uh, and I'm sorry if I can't say that word on your, on your, on your podcast, but you can, you can leap it out. Okay. And I'm going to call BS uh, on, on the organization side of it. And I'm going to answer the question specifically to the data transformation leader. So I would de-silo where insights are generated or have been traditionally generated and where this data transformation is happening. Okay. And because we can't basically de-silo that because we have, you know, lots of reasons why de-siloing is not happening within organizations in spite of the C-suite's intent and the C-suite's ask and everybody saying the words, but nobody actually doing it on the ground. And that's the calling the organization on its BS, right? Is that the C-suite needs to really start getting more accountable around saying, Hey, listen, we asked for these things to be de-siloed. How the heck are you doing it? and show me that the de-siloing is happening, not just the investments in the tech upgrades and complaining that the insights are not keeping pace. So de-silo first, that's the calling the organization of the BS. And the second thing is for data transformation leaders is, you know what, take some ownership, be the, be the change leaders for that de-siloing process. Don't sit in, you know, in, and I'm part of that insights, you know, side of the equation, if you may, don't sit in our ivory towers and be isolated from the rest of the world because we can't pace fast enough. 
get out of your ivory towers, learn the processes, get within these organizations that are doing the digital transformations and really be part of the journey. Don't like, don't, like it, it should be a two plus two versus a two against two. You know, you know what I mean? Kind of a mindset. So, so here's the thing though, for a data transformation leader, the way that you do this is you literally sit down and you say, all right, I have a process of insight generation. So if you think of the, if you think of the spectrum, like, let me just really lay it out at least in the way, in the way that I think of it in my head. So you have, you have hindsight, insight, right. And foresight. Let's say those are the three, you know, three buckets of, you know, of, of journey. When I first started in the business, uh, we were very much in the hindsight space. So insights, you know, if you may, or kind of, you know, my, my data and analytics, you know, um, you know, information that I would give to the decision makers was very much based on hindsight data, right? It was data that was already collected. Remember I said we would collect the data and then six months later, the generation of the insight of the action. So that's what I call hindsight. So it's already existing stuff. You've taken it, you've processed it, you've learned something and you made a decision, right? From there, we've come to what I would call like, you know, the, the insight generation piece. So it's not just about learning what happened is you want to, you want to know why it's happened. Okay. And now that you know why it's happened, you can now say, how do I control it? That's the foresight, right? Like, where am I going? Okay. So if you think of these three bodies of work, I think they're very related, uh, you know, in, 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 in the, in the insight or the analytics part of the equation. Correct. Now let's look at the digital transformation side of the same thing. A lot of the capabilities that have been built and where technology has come in and revolutionized is really making the what side of the house efficient. So we don't have to wait six months, three months, two weeks even. We have the information available like in an instant, like I said, all right? When that information is available in an instant, how do I as an insights organization pace and say, hey, if it's available in an instant, how do I get the action steps determined in an instant? Now, you don't want to make big decisions in an instant. There's some decisions that need more time. There's some decisions, frankly, that don't need all the time. So use a risk to rigor kind of a framework. And, and, and like I said, the BS for the data transformation, I'm sorry, the analytics transformation leader is, the BS is stop applying a decimal of four accuracy to every question you're answering. You don't need it, okay? There are a ton of questions out there that don't need the level of rigor that you need to put it through. So make that determination early on. You know what, these five questions, we think we know generally what to do. Let's go do it. Unless something is broken, let's not worry about it. Mm -hmm. But there are some questions, huge investment questions, future, you know, future change in consumer pattern questions. Let's put the rigor behind that and let me put all my effort and let me lead the organization through that process. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes perfect sense. And it's so good because this keeps coming up in our conversations uh, within our community all the time. This question of, okay, first of all, you as data analytics leaders, you are the purveyors of truth in the business. And with great power comes great responsibility. You know, yeah. uh, Just re literally taking this from Spider-Man, obviously, but, but, <laughs> yeah. but it's true, but it's true. And ultimately you need to figure out what kind of position you you will be in the company. You want to be that trusted advisor. But what does that mean? There is this fine line between yeah. humility and assertiveness. Like, how do you actually approach this engagement with the key stakeholders when you try to influence them? So can you talk a little bit more about this? If you reflect on your career, think about those virtues 
I know it's a word that we don't really use anymore, but it's a habit of character as the old Greeks yeah. uh, really used it. So what kind of virtues do you need to think, do you think that the data transformation leaders need to manifest in order to have strong influence in the business? Yeah, if I had to pick one virtue, um, and I've always conducted myself with this, I, I would believe, and you know, if folks out there listen to this and disagree with me, uh, please reach out to me and tell me, people I've worked with that is, uh, because I'd love, to, I'd love to get some feedback. No, but my perspective is that that virtue that you're talking about is a simple virtue of saying, your problem is my problem. Mm -hmm. All right? Um, empathy putting ourselves in our stakeholders shoes, really owning the business like a frontline PL owner would, a frontline general manager would, a frontline sales rep would, okay? That's what I think is needed, you know? So that's the virtue. Now, how does it show up and why is it important, okay? The thing is though, remember I was talking about this inside generation not pacing the data generation? And when you think of the inside generation, not facing the data generation, what's been happening is because the inside side of the house has been this, well, this is, this is our deal. We're going to take the time we need to take to create the right insight, right? Like, and I'm talking, you know, this is again, me included in that, not, not me personally, but the fraternity, right? So what happens then is that the, 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 the other side of the house is saying, Hey, listen, we've generated the data. We can't wait for you guys to generate the insight. So what, you know what, we're just going to go do our own thing. We're going to go try and figure it out. And why is that happening? That's happening because the insight side of the house is saying, it's not my problem, right? But if the insight side of the house said, no, your problem is my problem, which is you're creating data that's not getting used and you're getting pushed by the organization saying, hey, what the heck, we've invested in all this data, it's getting collected, where's the damn decision-making thing happening, right? And the insight folks says, that's your problem, that's not, my, that's not my problem, right? Own the problem, damn it. That's the way you break this down. That's the virtue, own the problem, make it your own problem. Okay. And you got to get out there and you got to say, you're getting pushed. How can I help you? Right. And so this is where the disconnect happened in organizations. So the divergence between where the data houses started going and doing their own thing. And that's how you get the big tech. That's how you get the big analytics deployments in organizations. That's how you get these organizations coming in and saying, oh, we can run and democratize insight by running data visualizations as many as you need for whoever needs it. And somehow we then assume that that's what's gonna drive business growth. And it doesn't, how can it, right? But I can see how clearly we got there because there was no ownership. Now, let me flip it the other way too. All the tech transformations and the digital transformations, they ought to also be behaving in a way that your problem is my problem. So the insight side of the house is, hey, I can generate an insight as fast as you want me to. And there's real reasons why. Try and understand that for Christ's sake. Don't just run off and do your own thing, okay? Because that's where the disconnect is happening. And you know what the real outcome of all this is? It is playing havoc in the C-suite. Havoc, right? You have C-suites, and I've spoken to many, many leaders in the C-suite, right, who own the business and make decisions for the business, who are saying, I'm super confused, guys and gals. You guys walk in here, and you're saying one thing, and you're saying one thing. Can you not talk to each other and tell me one thing? Right? Why am I the person who has to sift through all this and be able to make the decision? I don't have the time. So that push is beginning to happen now where C-suites are saying, we've invested in this crap for 15 years. Where the heck is the growth? Because that was the premise, wasn't it? The premise was that you invest in this and we're going to grow you, your categories. 
it's going to be like raking in the cash, right? You know, there's just more to have. Right now, we're not raking in the cash because we don't have the data access to analyze, to generate the insight. Well, it's not true because it's never about that. It's about pacing your insight, real insight, at the rate that your data is being generated, aligning the two, and providing one decision to the decision makers. That's the breakdown. And if we can figure this out, I'm telling you, um, you know, 1% growth rates in CPG categories is laughable. Mm -hmm. People are happy with 1% growth rates. Okay. It's because that's what we've been trained to expect. And my point is, and I would offer this up as a challenge is, is get out there and fix the problem where the problem needs to, needs to, needs to be fixed. And then let's see if 1% is acceptable or not. Mm. No, th this is so good. And I'm thinking because um, we talked about these things uh, before, and I remember you mentioned a really cool story uh, that you had when you actually exercised what you just said, when you, yeah. when you, when you actually went out. Now, basically, when you try to engage the business, you, you, you find something, you identify a problem, you identify an opportunity, and you do have those actionable insights that you want to provide to the business. Now, the business won't always be receptive. Well, so can you bring an example of maybe when you broke through that barrier, maybe you could actually generate some results by properly aligning yourself and positioning yourself in the business and actually getting stakeholders to move uh, in a particular way. I think you mentioned the story and I would love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll, 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 I'll pick on one from earlier in my career, right? Um, and this was, a, this was a case where, uh, you know, um, there, was a, there was a stacking portfolio um, and there was some decisions being made on, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to reallocate some of those, some of that spending. But, but the way that we got to that place was via kind of, you know, via a sub-segment analysis. So let me just lay this out. So there was a granola bar um, that we were analyzing and we were providing recommendations based on some consumer insight work and some, in, you know, in-market data analytics work that this brand was ready to become mainstream so it was very niche very targeted you know to health conscious consumers you know it had a very sampling driven you know kind of a you know business model there was only print advertising if you may in these specific magazines that were targeting these consumers um so in other words very kind of you know um you know uh, targeted uh, reach uh, driving mechanisms to keep the keep the you know brand going because it was a niche brand okay and we were saying that you know consumers out there in general the whole better for me you know, healthier eating was becoming a trend. And we said that this brand actually checks the boxes on all the things that consumers are looking for, okay? But they don't know where this brand is in a store because they don't recognize or they don't remember or they don't know the brand, frankly. So we went in with a recommendation saying that we, I think, are ready for this brand to go mainstream. And the way to go mainstream those days was to really, you know, Ad advertising dollars and the biggest reach platform then and by the way even today is tv so we said you got to go and put some some big bucks behind tv advertising and and i could have been done with my job right i was hired to generate that insight and then if i left the room at that point no harm no foul nobody would have fired me i would have still gotten my you know my my whatever my my paycheck and my bonus and i'd be happy correct but the business unit president said I'm sorry, the, um, the, uh, the uh, owner of that, of that business, right, the, that, that owned the brand said, um, I don't have the money to do that. TV advertising is expensive, and how the heck do you expect me to put money behind this? I understand what you're saying. I buy into it, but I don't have the money to do it, which was just a passing comment in the room. 
So guess what? Remember I said your problem is my problem? The minute that was said in the room, that became my problem. So here's what we did. We went away and we did an analysis leveling one layer up. So we went to the portfolio that owned this business and we said at the portfolio level, how are we spending our money in terms of how effective that is and how efficient that is. And we found, lo and behold, that there was a part of the business that was spending huge advertising dollars for bumpkus return, literally analyzed in the analytics we'd done, we had the data. And we said, listen, if you take that money and you put it on this business, just the delivered margin per case difference between the two will give you a three-time return of your, you know, of your ROI. Make sense? Yeah, makes perfect sense. And okay. such a good example too. Yeah, so we went in um, and we made the recommendation and what's not to like in this, right? The division unit president said, fantastic, fantastic. I'm gonna take money away from here and I'm gonna put it here and we're all good. Uh, but it's a problem. <laughs> and the problem is the person who owns the unit where the money is being taken away from doesn't like that, right? That's my problem too. That's not the, that's not the business unit president's problem alone. That's my problem too, because I need to make sure that all stakeholders understand why we're doing this. So the, the idea then was we embarked on this journey to make this person understand that even though we were taking money away from that particular lever, because it had a bumpkus return, it really meant almost zero volume impact, right? We said it was about 100,000 cases or 200,000 cases of loss if you took your TV advertising, which was, which was nothing in the, in the broad scheme of things. So he said, well, it's, it's 100,000 cases, man. What do you mean? You're killing me, right? So guess what we did? We went to the, to the uh, person who was the, who was the seller to the mass channels like Costco and, and Sam's Club and I picked the phone and I said, hey, you know, I'll pick a random name. I'll say, hey, Joe, um, you know, uh, if you had to, if you had to sell in 100,000 more cases of this particular brand into your channels, how big, of an, how big of an effort is it? He said, well, why do you ask? I said, well, I told him what we were doing. He said, yeah, well, we can wing it. Let's see if I can do something. They went in and they sold 300,000 more cases. So went back to this person and said, you're more than whole. Okay. And that's it, done, money was taken, money was put in this brand. By the way, that first time that brand was advertised with TV dollars, and I'm super proud to say that three years later, that became a billion dollar brand, okay? Now, here's the thing though, um, I was done, like I said, I could have been done that first conversation, right? But I made two problems my problem, okay? So we have a better outcome. And it's not about me and my team, this is about at every level, if we make other people's problem our problem, we just have better outcomes, okay? So then guess what, an year later, <laughs> a year later, everybody forgot this, right? Everybody moved on. Yeah, great, everybody's good. A year later, I went back to this, this person that we took the money away from. And I said, listen, I said, we were in here, remember, last year saying you'll lose like 100,000 cases if we did this. Um, the new numbers have come in. We've reassessed what the model is and we know exactly how much we lost because we didn't advertise your brand. You want to know? And he said, what, what, what are you talking about? I said, do you remember? You chewed me out a year ago and blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm not here to, 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 you know, to really rub this in your face, but I think I'm closing the loop to say, because it's important, we need to close the loop. So we can't just make recommendations and walk away. We gotta have the courage to come back and say, did my recommendation work or not? And it's a risky proposition, mind you, because I've been in places where not all the time my recommendations worked, okay? So this is a story I'm choosing to tell where the recommendation worked. Mm -hmm. There've been many times when they haven't worked and I've always used the same discipline, okay? Mm -hmm. Because nobody shoots you. 
because you're doing your, what you're doing because you know what you're doing. And every once in a while, you don't have the right information and you made the wrong call. And that's okay. Learn from it, right? So we went back and I said, do you want to know how much? And he said, yeah, well, we're, we're, okay. So what's the, what's the story? I said, you lost 25,000 cases. We estimated 100,000 case loss. He actually lost 25,000 cases because they didn't have, due to TB being cut. So there you go. So when you think about the story, the reason I kind of narrated this story, mm -hmm. why it came to mind is, and there've been many like that in my, in my career, many, 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 at different levels of impact. But what I think the, the salient features of this is, I think it reinforces that your problem is my problem, you know, virtue, um, number one. And number two is stakeholders, you know what? It's not just, stakeholders is not just about external stakeholders. I'm a stakeholder too of the business, aren't I? If I've been brought into the business and I'm paid a salary and I'm asked to give insights to grow the business, it is my problem across the chain, the decision-making chain of how to make how to make growth happen. I can't just walk in and say, oh yeah, just do this because you know when you do this, we know you're gonna get a good click of growth. You gotta say, okay, but the execution is not happening and how do we do that? That's part of the stakeholder conversation too. Mm, that makes that makes perfect sense. Okay, so this was a really cool story of actually exercising influence in the business and impacting key stakeholders. Now, when we talk about engagement of sta stakeholders, the whole idea of storytelling uh, uh, comes up because you guys, you work with the numbers, you work with the technology, but at the same time, ultimately, you want to impact human decision-making. And it happens through communication. So I know that storytelling is kind of like a buzzword. I and mean, this is also one of the reasons why we're called the data storytellers. But storytelling is ultimately about moving people. A moving story is called a moving story because it actually changes how people act and behave. And it's almost synonymous with persu persuasion and influence. And we're talking about soft skills in this. So when you think about the power of storytelling and your best practices of influence and persuasion, what have you identified as the key elements of successful uh, a persuasion in the business. I mean, you want to impact business stakeholders. Yeah, I think that the principles that I've experienced and I've recognized and I've, you know, I've noted among who I would consider, you know, really good at doing this, right? Um, you know, with an organization. So I'm not, and I'll, and I'll tell you, I've always considered myself um, as someone who's a lifelong student and who has a lot to learn in the space because, you know, um, it's, it's challenging to come from a place where you deal with numbers and, and measures and, you know, and decimal places. And then, and then you say, all right, these are the numbers. And then, you know, how do you convert that into a story that's, you know, that people can relate to, right? But, but I think the principles are the exact same. If you really think about great influence and impact, you know, over the, over the generations, and let me just step out, this is in any sphere, right? Any sphere, it's, 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 it's political, economic, um, you know, social, um, you know, what was that, what was the thing that really got people to engage and make change, right? Is when it was personal to them. You know what I mean? If it was a theoretical exercise, it's happening to someone else, the ability to actually implement and adapt change is almost impossible, right? So, so when, when great social movements took root and changed societies, they happened because everybody was able to relate to it to say, well, this is my, this is my issue too, right? And I need to care about this stuff and I need to do something about it. Okay. And, and you'll, you'll hear, you'll hear tons of examples, but if you go back and you, people who are listening to this, if they go back and do some research on moms against drunk driving, you know, you'll get to the tenets of, 
of what that is. Okay. Um, it was a powerful, powerful story that parents who lost children to drunk driving accidents um, were telling that anyone, even if you didn't have a child, if you were a kind human being, you would get it. And then you start getting into this movement of society getting conscious to say, hey, we got to do something about this. You know what I mean? So that's what I mean by it. Now, not as, not as dramatic as that, but now let me kind of dial it back to the business world, professional world, right? So when you, I, I, think, I think the big opportunity is to be able to take every single analysis we're doing because every single analysis we're doing is because it's based on answering a question okay, is to really bring it down to that root and write your, you know, and, and, you know, I, I heard this term when I was working at General Mills and I really liked it. They would say, write your deck, right? Um, it's not, it's not, it's not make your deck. It's not build your deck. It's not pitch your deck. It's write your deck. And the way to do that is to go back and say, what was the question I was asked? Go to the antecedent of why was I asked that question? And if I answer that question, why should you care? You personally, not just you, you know, rhetorically, it's you, Mr. X, Miss Y, you know, what, what, why should you care? Okay. And if we include these elements into this, into this, you know, into this process, I think that's the key. And like I said, I'm, I can put myself out there and, and tell you, I'm not the best at it. I know that I'm pretty self-aware, but I know people out there do this really well. And I've learned that the people who do it really well actually come from, come from backgrounds um, and training of understanding social behavior, of understanding communication, of understanding influence at the true empathetic level, right? So I'm not saying that, you know, psychologists now start becoming, you know, data scientists or social scientists start becoming data scientists. That's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is that if, if we are in the data science world and we're in the analytics world, I think there are tools and spaces and places that we can go and learn things to make us better data storytellers. It's not just about the visual. Um, it's not just about the pretty, you know, the pretty icon. It's not about how few words are on a slide. Uh, you know what I mean? It's ultimately telling that story, no matter what you, you could have a slide that has 35 words on it. And I would make the case that if you're a great storyteller, you will have greater influence and impact than if you had a amazingly pretty slide and you had no clue how to tell a story. Mm, that's, that's such a good point. And this brings up this question of humanizing analytics, because again, we are working with things that are by definition, what we call cold cognitive. Even if you look at our logo, you see that the yeah. split between the two yeah. hemispheres, the logical mind and the creative mind, and you manage to bring them together, uh, that's where the magic happens. Now with the data analytics, we our starting position is like very, very cold. It means that this is technology. We're, we are talking about numbers and statistics. Now you gotta connect this to the human being, to the human person. As I said, you make it personal. So when we talk about this and the human humanization of the language of analytics, uh, the question of data literacy comes up all the time, right? So I would be interested in your taking this. So you work currently in a role that uh, is about growth analytics. Now, do you find, that, do you find it challenging that uh, the 
the area of analytics is just very hard for people to understand that sometimes people just nod. If you ask someone, do you want to be data-driven? Of course, AI machine learning, yeah, definitely that's a trend that, that we need to invest in. But at the same time, they still don't really understand what this is because there is this wall that's difficult to break through. So what are your insights into this and how important is today to drive data literacy or data fluency in a business? And what what is your experience in this field? Yeah, so um, my I, th I think you laid it out well. I don't need to repeat what the problem mm. is, right? The, the 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 problem is that there is a disconnect within the folks who are receiving these capabilities and the folks who are delivering these capabilities, where the people who are receiving these capabilities are perpetually intimidated, right? Perpetually, they're like scared to not ask questions because they don't want to look dumb when you know you have great analytical experts in a room presenting and pontificating and you know and and really you know just going on and on and on the other side might have some doubts and questions but they don't want to be the pe person in the room who looks like someone who's not getting it because they are supposed to get it right um so yeah they, they, there you go that's a problem and it's a huge problem and i think that um let me give an analogy okay let's see if this if this kind of explains what i what what, what i mean by what i'm about to say how to fix the problem so when we go to doctors and um, and a significant procedure is to be done on us. Okay, I'll pick heart surgery. Okay, uh, heart stops, you're dead. So how about that? Heart surgery. Um, you go into the doctor, you meet the cardiologist, and the cardiologist says, we've gone through stuff. We found problems. Those problems mean that your blood's not flowing the way it needs to flow. So we need to go and do a procedure, and that procedure means we're going to take a, the one of the valves out, put a new one in, put a stint in your arteries, and I think there's an 80% chance that you're gonna be fine. How complicated was that? Do I need to be the cardiologist to understand that? Absolutely not. Do I need to go to four years of medical school and eight years of residency to understand what to do in that case? Absolutely not. So whose job is it to make it understandable and easy to Right. So the cardiologist came in and like, oh, you know what? Uh, there's a, you know, throw like 15 medical terms and say, you know, you know, this enzyme and that enzyme and, you know, and you, you can do this and, you know, you have a 20 percent chance of dying. Uh, you think I'm going to say yes to that procedure? No, I'm not. Right. So let me bring that analogy back to my world. Whose job is it? Whose job is it to make that experience less intimidating? It's my job. So stop complaining that people are saying they're not understanding what I'm saying. It's your job, my job, our job to explain that in a way that people walk away with what's important to walk away with. Every time they walk away, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's my problem. Because every time I'm not able to impose on people the decisions they need to make to grow the business, guess what? Bad decisions get made. And that's, again, another piece of it, which we need to own it, man. We really need to. So, so get, get out of this, oh, you know, there's no data literacy. Are you kidding me? Let, let me? let me ask you a question, okay? You think businesses have not run because analytics were not presented to these businesses? How were great brands built? I would argue they were built on instinct and intuition based on good decision-making, yes? Absolutely. You think the Ford company had a great data analytics outfit to say that they need to do the Model T? No, they didn't. But they did the Model T because they understood the consumer and they acted on instinct and good business. All that is analytics. How intimidating is that? Why should it be intimidating? What, what is this data literacy we keep talking about? Why is it so important for my 
audience to understand regression modeling, for me to be able to explain, you need to take this up three points because every time you take it up three points, your share grows six points. How hard is that? Do you know what I mean? Mm, absolutely. So, so data literacy, yes, we need to upskill and upgrade. We need to bring our leadership, our, our stakeholders along in the journey because these topics are changing, right? They're evolving. They're becoming more sophisticated. We absolutely need to educate people on what's changing. Like a good cardiologist would, would, who graduated medical school 25 years ago is still doing cardiac surgeries today. Is why? Because they've been training themselves and keeping them, themselves up to speed. So when they go into that room and they say, we need to do this procedure on you, guess what? It's the exact same thing that they were doing 25 years ago. The tools they use are different. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, so, so this whole, this whole thing, I, I, I kind of take a very, um, you know, as you can tell, I have great passion for this because mm -hmm. I think the inability to do this is killing the analytics practice inside the organizations. And the inability to do this means that we are confusing data for insight. And the inability to do this is that we keep throwing big money after small money and we still don't get big results. So let me, let me give you this, let me give you this, um, you know, another, another kind of soundbite, if you may, you know, I've oftentimes been in conversations and I've observed, you know, things and I've worked for big organizations. I still work for a, for a large organization and, and, you know, this whole big data, you know, kind of, you know, promise and premise of saying, oh my God, you know, big data is just going to, you know, just do everything we need to do. Right. All we have to do is take the data, put it in a lake and voila. Right. Right. Uh, not so true. And you know why that is? Because the people who are actually making their big data lakes work for them. And there are tons of them out there, right? There are tons of them uh, in, in, the, in the airline sector, in the, in the content, you know, uh, generation and, and, you know, and like, you know, like Netflix, for example, is a great example that comes to mind. Delta is a great example that comes to mind. They've been doing great stuff with their big data investments. And you know why they're doing great stuff with their big data investments? Because they were doing great stuff with their small data infrastructures as well, whatever that means. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, the, so the, the whole point was they started with saying, what's driving my business? Who's my consumer? Why is it important? What pieces of my business data informs me? Those principles are set in stone. They are so well, uh, you know, so well oriented to this thinking that it's grooved in their brain. The muscle is built. They don't have to learn it. They don't need any literacy, right? They're doing it every single day. It's like getting up and brushing your teeth. How many times do you need to be educated to do that? Well, if you need to be educated, that's a different problem. But you see what I'm saying, right? Get up and do these things. And if you were doing them before in the small data world, guess what you'll be doing in the big data world? And those guys are killing it, okay? And I, I come from CPG and I'll tell you, you know, CPG has a ton to learn from those folks. And it's not about the systems and it's not about the throwing more money. It's, not, it's about the behaviors. Uh, of how you determine what is important to driving consumer growth and how do you then institutionalize that top down and how do you build the groove in your organizations and make sure everybody's doing that, the muscle, how do you build that muscle? That's what's needed, not data literacy. It's the ways of working for crying out loud. Let's do that first, you know what I mean? In a consistent way where the C-suite is holding everybody accountable. And I think the C-suite needs to step up. They hold everybody accountable across the cross functions, right? So if you go to C-suite and and people sitting around the, say you were, you were CEO of a company, right, Laszlo? And you have your leadership team, right? Mm -hmm. You have your finance person, right? You have your CTO, 
you have your salesperson, your supply chain, you have everybody, right? You're holding everybody accountable to decisions you make in that room, don't you? You come in and you say, hey, uh, we're going to do this here, we're going to do there. You come in next period and say, hey, did we do it? What happened? Why doesn't that happen with analytics? Why doesn't it happen at the CEO table where it's not the CFO who's being asked those questions and it's hidden under some kind of finance efficiency metric? Why isn't it brought up to the CEO table as a chief analytics officer sitting at the table saying, we have put money into this practice. How is it driving my growth? And we're going to review that. We're going to red light it, green light it, yellow light it, whatever light it. We're going to have that conversation at the same level of expectation that we do with our sales functions, with our supply chain functions, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. That's what's needed. Not teaching 10,000 people how to read a business inside dashboard for crying out loud. It is this piece that's needed, which is data literacy is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying that you can solve that, but you're not going to solve the problem. So, so yeah, so I think it's the, it's the cardiology experience, you know, um, uh, analogy. We've got to be the heart surgeons in the organization that make it so simple that the organization is going to go through the procedure. Hmm. So, 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 the good point well made. And also because it's almost like reframing data literacy. Ultimately, why do you want data literacy? So that people exactly. embrace and understand yeah. Yeah. Your, your initiatives. And then this whole extreme ownership angle that you're taking, I love it because it kind of puts the weight on you. And actually that is, if you look at best practice storytelling, take Richard Feynman, you know, the, 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 um, phys, um, he was an astrophysicist, mm -hmm. I think. Yep. And yep. his thing, the Feynman technique is all about distilling these incredibly difficult, complicated, convoluted concepts into something that a five-year-old can understand. Yeah. Right. Yep. And it yep. is on you. So I, I love that. Absolutely. And there's just so much more that we could explore. Oh, unpack. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it goes directly to what's behind you, right? It's storytelling at mm -hmm. its best. But it's not storytelling as a, oh, once upon a time there was a, no, it's storytelling as in, let me lay the landscape for you. Let me tell you what I'm finding. Let me tell you what you need to be doing, because if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen. Or if you do it, this is what's going to happen. That's it. How hard is that? The reason it's hard, and may I offer this up, and I'm part of the fraternity, so I'm putting myself very much in this. The reason it's hard is because I haven't figured it out for myself. Because I have not, I've not stitched all the pieces together. I'm coming in doing just my piece. When I stitch all the pieces together, I will challenge anybody who tells me, that they're having a hard time influencing their stakeholders on what they did and what the stakeholders are supposed to do. The reason the stakeholders are having a hard time is because the stakeholders are not getting the full context, man. They're not getting the full picture, okay? So the cardiologist came in and said, surgery tomorrow 8 a.m. What are the chances of that outcome, do you think? Do you know what I mean? That's the point. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but, but it's, just, it's just this, yeah, it's, 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 it's what you have. It's, it's, it's storytelling at its best. What is storytelling? Storytelling is not a formula. Storytelling is this, you and me having a conversation and you walking away thinking about it after the fact and me walking away thinking about it after the fact. That's storytelling. It's actually engaging. It's, it's engaging and landing and making it personal. Every time you do that, you build amazing franchises, you know, and I'm a big Marvel fan and I don't have to say anything more, but... I am just a big fan of movie, movies and how they do it, right? Absolutely, and, and that's exactly the area where I think 
we could look for inspiration because those first principles that they use to make storytelling engaging and impactful, they can be implemented in the data analytics world. And as you said, like professionals might not have the the full picture, but actually even our community, it's about let's look at specific examples and then let's make it applicable to you guys. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping that also on our uh, on the data story that we will record with you, we can dive into this a little bit yeah. more, you know, look at an example. And I look forward to the Q&A after that too, because again, we just have so, so much to talk about, but we won't have yeah. time today. But I think that's yeah, also yeah. like a great point to finish on. If you wanted to give the data leaders of the future, just... Uh, like a few sentences worth of insights and advice, your personal recommendations, what would, be, what would that be now in, in 2022? In 2022, it will be the exact same thing that was in 1995. And that is step out of your basements, get off of your mainframes, get in the cubicles where the decisions are being made and understand how those decisions are being made. Cubicles don't exist in 2022, I know that. Mainframes don't exist in 2022, I get it. But whatever the equivalent of that is today, step out of that. So de-silo yourself because you own the problem. The business growing or not growing is our problem. And we own the job of convincing the business to do what the business needs to do. And if we're running into interference in that, figure it out. And I've learned this over the years and uh, sometimes I've done it really well, and sometimes I've not done it well, okay? And the results are there to show when I've not done it well, is the de-siloing that I talk about. It's all about influence building via personal relationships. If I walk in and I tell you, Laszlo, to do something, and you have no clue where I am coming from on this or who I am, how likely are you to even listen to me? Zero likely. But if I spend the effort and time to get to know you, to get to know what keeps you up at night, why you're running the business the way you're running, what are your issues? What are your opportunities? What do you think are great things to do, right? And then I take all that into my analysis and I come in and have the conversation with you. What is the likelihood that you'll listen to me? Very high. So that's it. So that principle in my 27 years that I've seen on myself where I've used it and not used it, and I've seen others where they've used it and not used it, that has not changed. That has not changed. It's this ability to put yourself in others' shoes, right? Again, their problem is my problem. That's Amen. it. Amen. Amen. And, and video time, this was fantastic. I hope we can continue uh, yeah, this absolutely. to the Q&A of the, of the data story. And uh, well, look, I'm, I'm sure that you, you're in an exciting stage of your career as well. So hope, yes. to, to hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you very much for yes. your contribution and we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, I would love to, uh, Laszlo, keep the conversation going. There's a lot to unpack, as you've said. And uh, this gives me a lot of passion. And this is what I've done, like I said. And I just and it shows. talking about it. it yeah, shows. absolutely. And once again, thank you for inviting me to this. It's a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it and look forward to having more conversations and good luck with everything that you folks are doing. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right.